Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. I'm really thankful that um, everybody made it here tonight. Uh, first of all, I really want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction, as always. His website is nativestorytellers.com, and um, if you've never heard anybody tell uh, some of the native story stories, th- he's an amazing man to listen to, on top of the fact he has a spectacular voice. My guest tonight is Lon Krieger, and he is a retired military man and an expert at digging for facts. He found a genuine passion for the ancient garden beds of Michigan, and his expansive research gives a new and broader understanding to these mysterious structures. They are amazing. I lived in Michigan for almost 10 years and never knew that they were there. I, you know, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, antiquity is there, and it smacks you in the face, and it hides in plain sight. And, and unless you really are paying attention, you walk right by it. And Juan um, has discovered these amazing flower beds, and they open you to a new understanding as to the people, the ancient people that were here, and how they weren't primitive. They were highly developed and and I think that's one of the things most of us often look at when we when we're talking about the the first people and things like that we we think of them as as sort of primitive and yet these flower beds covered anywhere from 20 to 300 acres and and how they did it and why they did it is an amazing story, and I'm so glad that he's here to tell the story tonight. So welcome to the show, Lon. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. It's uh, great to be with you again. Uh, it's been a crazy, hefty day for both of us, I think. But uh, yes, it has. <laughs> it, I'm, <laughs> I'm delighted uh, that you invited me on. Thank you very much. Well, I think it's so important because, you know, when you think of flower beds, you think, you know, what's the big deal? But it's it's a tremendous deal, especially 
especially if it isn't just flowers that are growing. But but you you've come across these flower beds in Michigan and and in in other states as well, and they they, they were developed and tended by a people that the history doesn't report on, which is a very sad thing. Right. Um, well, let me clarify. These are not flower beds. <laughs> these okay. are garden beds. Garden yeah, bed. these were these were ancient garden beds uh, that they grew on an industrial scale, according uh, to Dr. David Overstreet and Dr. Philip Graham and Dr. Denovan out of the University of Wisconsin and Menominee uh, uh, Native College in Upper Wisconsin. And these garden beds, uh, they've been, uh, they were named uh, as garden beds by Henry Schoolcraft and Bella Hubbard and some other researchers and surveyors in the early 1800s, circa 1828 and forward. And these garden beds were... Uh, people realized that the Europeans uh, who came uh, and in the old world, traditional farming was done by, by plow in simple, straightforward rows. And as you can see from the photographs and previous articles that I've written, what is so fascinating about these beds, as you so beautifully pointed out in your intro, is that these garden beds were giant spoke wheel shaped or arrowhead shaped uh, labyrinthine shaped geometries uh, built uh, in a raised row platform higher than we typically build or plow a row. They fashioned these rows at about 18 to 24 inch heights and on a 20 to 300 acre scale according to Henry Schoolcraft, when he first surveyed these in the early 1800s. And uh, their gardening style uh, has come down to us to the present day through a score of uh, uh, Native American groups from the Seneca tribe in Pennsylvania uh, the native tribes of New England and across the Great Lakes uh, and uh, uh, the Ohio Valley region. Uh, and they, f they farmed anciently and right up to modern times in a, in a garden f farming format known as the Three Sisters form of gardening. And this, uh, this uh, system of planting in these raised garden beds uh, involved, and among the Jibwa, it's called Giiti Geang. It's very hard to pronounce for non-native speakers, uh, meaning the three sisters' forms. And the, what the, the way they would plant is they would take uh, kernels of corn and plant in the center of the hill. And if you have any pictures uh, going on YouTube or on your site, uh, that we had uh, previously of the giant spoked wheel, they yeah, would plant there. the corn. They would plant that corn in the center on the top of the hill, and somehow these people were so expert, they understood that corn uh, literally sucks the nitrogen out of soil. Uh, 
as it grows. And so to compensate for that soil chemistry uh, deficiency, they would then plant beans uh, at the base roots of the corn and allow the beans, vines, to climb the corn stalks, which is brilliant, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And then then in order to help reinforce the whole process and the soil chemistry with the beans, uh, they would plant squash in those spokes radiating outward, and then many times they would also plant sunflower seeds on the outer ridge. Now, uh, the academic archaeologists like Overstreet and some others, uh, they saw the beauty in this, and it's, it's really uh, genius when you consider it. For instance, in upper Wisconsin, uh, which is really obviously just east of the Minnesota Plains, as it were, they got terrific winds and still do, right, blowing across the northern plains region. So by planting sunflower uh, seeds and stalks uh, to the outer rim, if you will, of the garden plot and plat area, uh, and then having the beans grow up around the corn stalks, uh, one of the benefits was that it uh, helped shield the corn production from uh, high winds that had a tendency to blow corn over. So the sunflowers would take the beating first, then uh, then the bean vines would help uh, sort of like tie down the root base of the corn and help it maintain its base. Um, Since, uh, and beyond that, uh, what they have since discovered, which is quite fascinating, and you don't have to be a garden person, I don't think, to appreciate uh, these ancients, uh, because for me, it was a question of, wow, why did they farm with such amazing geometry, first of all, that's what captured my interest. Um, and second, uh, you know, all these other, what are all the other benefits of doing this way? Because if you look at those, that massive spoked wheel, um, I doubt very seriously that we have very many farmers today, one, who would decide to farm in such a geometry, and two, it would it would be a a very interesting problem for them to plow and raise garden beds in a spoke system like that, wouldn't it? Uh, With the the mechanical tractors and harvesters we have today. Well, I think what fascinates me is, I mean, some of these, these, these bed layouts are so intricate. It's almost like a patchwork quilt. And, um, you know, it's brilliant. And on top of that, the fact that they were, they they helped to protect them from frost so that, I mean, those raised exactly. beds are, serve many purposes. And, exactly. And, it just, and not only that, but th- not only that, but the fact that they put pottery shards in there too to help, you right. know, give give the roots something to grab onto which was another thing that that is is brilliant. I mean, I garden, 
and and I've had mm-hmm. I've 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 had I've you know tried corn once or twice and always it blew over and you can't stake it up once really? it's gone it's gone so because of the you know, shallow root base yeah so you know it was kind of like well we don't do this one again um, <laughs> but it was it was sort of like a why not I have the garden let me just put corn in and and <clears throat> a hurricane came through and and the corn was gone but, right, but, whereas the low base plants tend to survive sometimes. Oh yeah, they were just fine. <clears throat> so, so what what you've got here is brilliance, total brilliance. Right. And I mean, you over the over the years, over the thousands of years that they did this, and it was a thousand years at least, I think, wasn't it? At or least. Close to? Uh, yeah. I. I I think our research will probably soon take us back to uh, uh, two and three thousand BC. Uh, right now, uh, Overstreet, they've been going so slowly through the stratigraphy uh, of some of these beds and sending like every inch off to a uh, professor at the Smithsonian who developed a special uh, spectrographic. Uh, procedure, microscopic procedure, and she's like a pathologist. She can look at the the phytoliths of the seed starches and tell you how ancient they were and their origins and so forth. And what they have taken it back so far, thus far, just the very, uh, say, top, uh, uh, I, I think he's saying the top eight centimeters, three or four inches, uh, they've gone back as far as uh, five and six hundred A.D. presently, but you kn- we know that they just didn't invent them at that moment in time, right? They had obviously been doing this for a much longer period, and I maintain in my research, uh, uh, as a result of my research, in connecting the dots that uh, these people were the grocery store supply chain to the ancient copper miners and traders uh, who came uh, from the Mediterranean regions primarily up the Mississippi and down the St. Lawrence Seaway anciently three, 4,000 years ago. They were the food suppliers to these ancient uh, copper traders. And as you indicated about uh, the pottery fragments from our last discussion a few months ago, um, since they have since discovered, um, as you rightly pointed out, that not only uh, were the beds raised sufficiently high enough to keep the roots out of the frost, uh, the deep frost zone, uh, but and also the pottery fragments helped reinforce the root bases, as you pointed out. But they've since discovered that the troughing effect uh, between the rows uh, pro- provided a natural course irrigation channel. And uh-huh. Overstreet says they are dazzled uh, by the hundreds and hundreds of rows that they've found in the forest near Wolf Creek River, for instance, on the Menominee Reservation. And he, he says what's amazing is it would have taken millions 
of basket loads of river bottom mud and muck that they constantly uh, reinforced and resupplanted onto their garden beds year after year, season after season. And they were further struck recently when they found a whole series of garden row beds uh, uh, near Wolf River on bedrock. And mm-hmm. they were they were astonished that, that they would set them on bedrock. And he said, we came to discover the reason why. He said, the, turned out the bedrock provided an actual reflective base for uh, bounce back heat, subheating yeah. of the roads. <laughs> so, um, and what what was additionally amazing is uh, they discovered um, that their pottery, uh, unlike uh, anywhere else in the region or the country, uh, is what they call shell-tempered pottery made uh-huh. from crushed shell, snail shells and, and clam shells and so forth, as opposed to a granite clay uh, base type of pottery that we see elsewhere in the mounds, for instance. Um, and this shell-based pottery uh, turns out chemically that when they would mash their corn or their bean meal and so forth, they got a natural uptake of additional calcium in their diet, which kept them from being malnutritioned. <laughs> so these people knew what they were doing. They did. Now, the, of course, the question, I, I know that, you know, the last, what, six, 8,000 years, 9,000 years, the copper mines have been in production. So where, yeah. did, these, where did these people come from that tended well, these gardens? Well, according, and this is really a big breakthrough, and Overstreet in one of his lectures I noticed uh, he he really stands his ground, and he says these people in the Wisconsin area were, quote, on the landscape for 10,000 years or more. So, um, but it also appears that there is another culture, and he calls it the second culture, uh, that also came to, uh, that was, um, parallel or interacted with with this ancient group of garden builders. And so really, I think we can safely conclude from the evidence thus far that these people were already here when the copper traders started coming. And uh, it appears that there was an influx of another ancient people, uh, that sailed in and by the way the native american traditions are just full of this oral tradition of these migrations from the east sea and beyond the east sea which would be the atlantic and so forth for instance in the ojibwa tradition um they uh they are called the people of the three fires and they have what they call the prophecy of seven fires or the seven fires prophecy. And in their first prophecy, which is their, uh, and second prophecies speaks to their origin story. 
they talk about how their people came from far beyond the East Sea uh, in a, from a land um, in, in uh, tribulation or chaos, and they came on eight dishes or eight turtles, which is, which is very interesting. And um, the Ojibwa, Chippewa, were part of the vast Algonquin nations originally of the New England region, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and so forth. And they did not arrive in Michigan until the early 1500s. And they came to a place uh, known as Saginaw Bay Area, and they basically virtually exterminated the Potawatomi uh, people of of that region. And the, there were a couple hundred Potawatomi refugees that basically um, hot-footed it down to southwest Michigan. Now, if you look at one of the pictures I sent, I don't know if you were able to post it, there's a map of Michigan, and it shows in red in southwest Michigan the watershed region of southwest Michigan, and that's basically the area where the Potawatomi went. went. They subsequently uh, worked their way around Lake Michigan and back up into Wisconsin, but we're talking in the 1500s and 1600s and so forth. It turns out that the Menominee people were uh, the people that preceded them all. There's also a group called the Sock, uh, Ho-Chunk Sock, uh, and some of the Winnebago Nation, in their traditions, they feel that they came, and this is very interesting, from the other side of the old world, namely Chinese influence. Wow. And, and there's a Dr. Uh, Joan Price out of the University of Wisconsin who did a thesis on it uh, back in, I think, 91, uh, and did a fascinating thesis looking at uh, some of the Sock Fox tradi- oral traditions, their language, uh, and she traced a all the way back to a cave in Xiangxiang, China area, I believe it was, uh, and it's a massive painted mural that dates back a couple thousand years, and it very plainly <laughs> shows a Native American with a Mohawk-style um, uh, head arrangement and two other Native Americans, uh, I think with a spear and so forth, juxtaposed against a Chinese, uh, I want to say the word right, uh, Shaoshan priest and merchant. And of course, in Chinese tradition, uh, they had uh, sailed uh, to this land uh, many centuries ago. And then there's, of course, the famous book, uh, 1421, about mm-hmm. the vast Chinese sailing fleet. So that's another subject. But uh, I think what my study has led me to think about this is when you talk to most Native Americans uh, and my family line on my grandfather's side happens to be Creek and Choctaw and Cherokee influence uh, from the south which is a whole nother neat story about where the Creek 
came from. And we've kind of, uh, a guy by the name of Richard Thornton in Georgia is a really top-notch researcher in the area of the creek origins. And he has shown that they came out of the Norwegian uh, uh, region of, of uh, Osland and so forth. And many of our cultural words and uh, the building of our uh, ancestral roundhouses are completely reflective of Laplanders. So mm-hmm. keep that in your gray matter because that's another origin uh, story. But remember uh, that the world, uh, many millennia ago, uh, I. M- I originally did my undergraduate work as a geologist at the University of Arizona many decades ago and in archaeology and anthropology there. And uh, in archaeology or uh, geology 101, they tell you that all the continents were one piece many millennia ago before plate tectonics uh, really uh, began its surge and, and the plates of course, separated the major continents. And that was known originally as Pangaea. Uh, And later, after a separation, geologists refer to it as Guandana land. And that's when you got the Indian subcontinent breaking off with Australia. So the upshot is the native people say that this is not the new world, that that was the old world. Uh, or, or that this, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. This is the old world, okay, America, yeah. the North American continent, and Asia is, is the new world. And yeah. so even in uh, Egyptian uh, history and oral tradition, uh, you'll recall, I'm sure, on shows you've done in your own research, that uh, in uh, the Egyptian world, you were always buried facing west because they would journey to where the sun set. And, right. and because that's where we came from. Okay. And so oh, okay. they, they knew in their traditions that this land existed. See, and what people need to understand and they never got in history class is uh, what they did get is, you know, everybody thought the world was flat at the day of Columbus. What they didn't teach and didn't know, uh, most of them, was that most of the major empires and cultures before that, um, they did not have, uh, with the exception of some of the Greeks and Romans, they did have legends of falling off the edge of the earth and things like that. But many of the groups did not. You know, the early Phoenicians, uh, they, they were not necessarily afraid to sail anywhere. And, and so uh, they were the ones, along with the Minoans, 2000 B.C., 2400 B.C., and so forth, who had no fear of sailing to this continent and mining copper. And so uh, I think the people were already on this landscape for thousands of years, and many archaeologists and geologists would say, oh, that's baloney, because the 
the ice ages were so preeminent and so vast that, you know, the people, well, it was obvious, they would just move south with with the flow of the ice. As the ice Uh increased, the the animals were forced southward, and so were humans. And as they retreated, they had this beautiful opportunity to follow the rivers and lakes that formed behind them uh, to fish and so forth. So uh, I feel that uh, the people were on this landscape, many of them, hundreds of thousands of them, survived many Ice Age glacial movements uh, and um, remained on the landscape uh, all over North America. And, yes, there were various periods where there were die-offs due to um, you know, for instance, in the Southwest today, we have the hantavirus, uh, and that that hit the Pueblo nations uh, a thousand years ago, probably, where there were outbreaks caused by pack rats and uh, and rats and small rodents that carry the hantavirus in their dung and so forth. And you even today, there's always a case or two every year where someone contracts the hantavirus from breathing in these unseen spores. So there would be, you know, ebbs and flows like there always have been in history um, uh, with uh, contractions and expansions of human population uh, and so forth. Um, What's interesting in that vein is that when we're talking about the Little Ice Age, which occurred around uh, the 1400s um, in North America, it's fascinating that Overstreet and his group says, we see no evidence whatsoever that the uh, neo-boreal ice age of the 1400s had any impact on the ancient garden builders of Wisconsin whatsoever. Now, that's pretty amazing. And so, um, so I also want to mention that what really got me started into this research were the, these beautiful geometric garden beds of southwest Michigan, what came to be called the Kalamazoo garden beds. But they ranged all the way up near Saugatuck and down to Three Rivers, and there are a couple schoolcraft documented up near Sanilac, Saginaw Bay, and uh, a couple interspersed elsewhere. But the vast majority were the whole southwest Michigan area, which when the pioneers came said was some of the most beautiful farmland they had ever seen. And curiously enough, in parallel to it, uh, one of the Potawatomi chiefs, in the early 1800s was a a man by the name of Chief Pokagon. And uh, one of the early pioneers uh, documented uh, much of uh, his, uh, their interactions, but he was so highly regarded. There was an ancient trail, uh, virtually a native highway, if you will, from Lake Michigan on the west near Niles, Michigan, I think it goes, all the way east to Lake Erie uh, and beyond. And it came to be known in our day 
and in the early 1800s as the Pokagon Trail. But this was a trail that basically runners and traders between tribal groups and, and, and the mound builders, the Hopewell, and so forth, they would use this trail like a major highway between the two what they considered were oceans uh, ah. and often referred to them as seas, Lake Erie and Lake Michigan, as you can imagine. So, Well, Lake, Lake uh, Michigan is, is huge. Oh, yeah, as is Port uh, Lake Huron and Superior, right? Mm-hmm. No, they are amazing. So, I I think what, what makes me wonder is that <clears> – <throat> One of the things that, that in, in what I was reading, you know, of, of your articles and stuff, that that while these gardens were in production for for centuries, um, there was never any indication that there was war. So, so it was, right. it was, you know, they it was there was peace. There it was just. And it's amazing because, you know, we think of the Indians as being kind of, um, at least the stories go, sort of, you know, questing and fighting amongst themselves and everything. And yet there is absolutely no indication that there was any war during any of the time that these gardens were in production. Right. That was a, a startling revelation to Overstreet and Gardner uh, in the course of their of research in the last <clears throat> decade or so, they said as they have tried to peel back the history of the garden beds up in Wisconsin, for instance, uh, and we we have no ability now to look at the Kalamazoo area beds because our pioneer forefathers erased them all. They were gone yeah. by about 1880. But as for the upper Wisconsin beds, uh, that fascinated them and you and I, right, rightfully so, because uh, uh, Overstreet says that they produced produce on an industrial scale, number one. And number two, they did it without any w- evidence of warfare. They have never found any uh, atlatl spearheads, copper or stone, Neolithic stone, uh, no micro flints, no microchips so far, uh, or evidence uh, in or around the garden beds whatsoever. And that was surprising. And he goes on to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, that they lived, it appears that they lived in a peaceful symbiotic relationship with this second culture. <laughs> and you sort of have to uh, dig your way between the lines to find out that he is referring to another group that came in, of course, and intermarried probably, interbred and so forth. And uh, we know that one of the groups were these ancient Minoan, Phoenician, probably Carthaginian, uh, and various other uh, copper trader mining groups and and so it is astonishing that any culture <laughs> could get by for a hundred years much less probably three or four thousand years uh, without some kind of either civil war 
internecine warfare or warfare against these people coming in to their area, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, and along with that, I maintain now, you see, the according to historians and archaeologists, the Copper Bronze Age was ushered in in the Old World in the Mediterranean Mesopotamian region in particular, circa 750 B.C. Well, it, it apparently, and they don't know why or how it happened, but they'll tell you, the experts, it just sprang up all of a sudden, particularly initially in the island of Malta and the area of Sardinia and Greece and so forth. Well, it sprang up so suddenly in Malta that we know that the people there started making their own copper weapons, and they dispatched and disposed the previous pagan hierarchy that was ruling over them in Malta circa um, 750 B.C. range so far. So I maintain that we had our own Copper Bronze Age here, happening here in the Great Lakes region, oh, probably at least a 1,000 years before 750 B.C. And uh, I think I, I sent you a whole bunch of pictures um, just before the show. Uh, there's, a, there's a neat picture in there of some copper sickles, swords, uh, at lateral spear points, all found around uh, Wisconsin. There are literally hundreds of sites in Wisconsin and Michigan where hundreds, I could even get away with saying several thousand, uh, at lat copper bronze at lateral spearheads. And we're talking socketed and riveted spearheads that date back three and 4,000 years. And the way we know that is we have found some that still had stems on them that we could carbon date. And uh, so you you still have state archaeologists in different states, and they don't talk to each other, by the way. You know, the Ohio State archaeologists will not interact with West Virginians or Indiana, Illinois, vice versa. So the Ohio State historical people will have one view, a set mindset about their mound builders in Ohio, and while the West Virginia folks may take a whole different approach on who these people were and how long ago it was and so forth. And I say that to illustrate that there are, and I'm not going to name them, but there are some who absolutely refuse to allow the dating to To go back any further, or to admit uh, to the new facts on the horizon that keep coming forth that blow away the old paradigms, they're just not going to have it. See, and and academia uh, has to literally be run over by a tsunami of evidence in order to change their paradigm. Of course. Yeah, and and then it'll take another generation to alter the history books, too. Um, one right. thing that, that, that sort of, you know, there, there, have, there are these huge garden beds, and, and as you said before, 20 to 300 acres of them. 
And mm-hmm. there were also storage pits for food. So that, well, yes, so that, indeed. So that, You're so right. That, you know, they're storing, you know, as they're harvesting and stuff like that. But to my knowledge, there has been no uncovering of a huge community and where they lived to tend the gardens. Well, um, Overstreet has uh, documented uh, a fair amount of that because they're still getting blown away by what they're seeing. Let me explain how the paradigm has shifted on that score uh, in the last couple of years. as you rightly point out, in Wisconsin in particular, among the Menominee on the Oconto area of of uh, the Menominee Nation, uh, it's a rather huge county, Oconto County, and the Menominee Nation uh, is a sizable portion of it, and thankfully they had their uh, rights restored, I think, in the 70s or 80s. And they managed to retain a huge amount of forest. And if you look at it from Google Earth or satellite, you'll see uh, tremendous amounts of farmland everywhere up there. And then there's this beautiful forest. But what Overstreet has discovered is when they initially started finding these garden rows, oh, 15, 20 years ago, at first, he thought, oh, there's, there's only a, a hundred or maybe a couple hundred of these. Well, since then, they've found, I think they're close to several thousand. And wow. as you mentioned, what they were astonished to find is subsequently in about the last, well, six, seven years, I think, they started finding these stone-lined storage pits that you mentioned. And at first, they found a few. And then they started finding more. Now they've found hundreds and hundreds of them associated along uh, the bed areas for storage. And so it, we don't know entirely yet because they haven't uh, uh, completed some of their research. But it appears that, you know, they would store corn and uh, beans and squash and so forth and probably seeds inside pottery, uh, and then uh, they would probably pack it with leaves uh, during the winter. And I, in my imagination, I see little wooden uh, rooftop, uh, woven uh, rooftops placed over them and secured down for the winters, and then they would simply remove them and now they had their seed base with which to work from next, already ready for next year's, the new season's planting. Now, uh, in addition to that, what he's also described that also blew them away is when you look at uh, post-European um, arrival uh, native groups like the Odawa, Chippewa, and so forth, and Lakota Sioux, um, the Odawa and Chippewa moving across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan into the northeast corner of Wisconsin in the mid-1500s to 1600s. There, every day almost, if you read the history of the Ojibwa and the Lakota Sioux, 
They were, as you spoke earlier, in constant daily battles with each other. <laughs> and uh, their whole history is rife with them engaging in surprise attacks on each other. But it, it turns out, according to Overstreet and Gardner, they were amazed once again. Uh, we see the native groups, our classical native groups, living in uh, close, clustered, high-density uh, housing, as it were, with their uh, tribal structures. Um, and what blew them away was they were finding post holes for home structures, for residences, that were spread out all across the landscape for miles. In other words, they did not congregate in closely held, uh, you know, circular communities like we've known across the sands of time uh, from Africa <laughs> uh, to the Mongol steppes to here. They simply built a structure. Uh, you know, they would be blocks or a mile apart many times, he's saying, is what we're finding. And that in itself, of course, is extraordinary. What's, what's also useful to reflect upon in terms of planting and gardening is um, just as Squanto taught the, the first pilgrim settlers to use fish as a fertilizer, uh, and this is what saved the pilgrims, uh, in colonial diaries, uh, they speak to uh, being taught how to garden in this land. Uh, Squanto and uh, others uh, in Chief Massasoit's tribe were instrumental in teaching them how to use fish fertilizer or fish emulsion, as we call it today. And fish, it turns out, is just about the best fertilizer known to man. Uh, and they were able, the pilgrims, to generate two and three crops uh, in that first season, which was just baffling to them. And so uh, when you consider that among the Menominee Nation today, uh, uh, their name Menominee comes from the word Manuman in their language and in the Ojibwa, which uh, means wild rice or people of the wild rice. And to this very day, the Menominee have uh, little flat boats that they float out on, on watershed areas, and about 40 to 60% of their diet today is actually wild rice that they harvest on the reservations, and about 40%, 30% of their diet still consists of sturgeon, walleye, and other fish stock, and muskrat and so forth. And so they were big fisher people, and I suspect that uh, somewhere along the way, Overstreet and Company will discover, uh, well, they may not because uh, cartilaginous fishbone really decays quickly, but I suspect they fertilized their field heavily with scrap, you know, uh, fish emulsion effect uh, fertilizer in order to generate these crops. 
and once again reflect on the fact that they did this on an industrial scale. And what's so amazing about that is he says they were farming tons and tons of garden crops that they could never use. So this, I use this to connect a dot to the copper traders when you consider that even academics today pretty much agree, I think in general, that they estimate that there were 10,000 copper miners annually in the Keweenaw Peninsula and on Isle Royal, Michigan in, in Lake Superior near Canada um, every season for several thousand years. And when you have 10,000 copper miners or maybe more, what we have not found is any evidence of them building cabins or lodges of any kind. And so Fred Ridholm in his book, Michigan Copper, uh, I think rightly and beautifully uh, summates that these people probably lived on their ships during the mining season. And they would probably trade fish or bear pelts or any number of other products uh, with the ancient Menominee and and company, whoever the others were, the ancient Adena and archaic people on the landscape there, uh, they probably traded heavily. And meanwhile, they have apparently, uh, uh, they are skilled copper workers, and they're hammering out copper by the tonnage, and they're sharing it and trading uh, these at lateral copper heads with uh, the uh, the local uh, garden builders. Now, what's fascinating about the copper traders is that uh, we and, and we've been able to validate a great deal of this um, this movement of what academics say is about two billion tons of ancient Michigan copper having wow. been moved somewhere. And the academics don't like to talk about the Mediterranean or the old world because they say we can't prove it, you know. But guess what? It went somewhere, and they all agree on that, okay? So where did 2 billion tons or a half billion tons of copper go that they know was mined anciently? For instance, on Isle Royal, the DNR estimated that there are over 15,000 six-foot to 30-foot deep copper pits on Isle Royal, which is, I think, 30 miles in circumference or so. It's, it's always been uh, dangerous to walk on Isle Royal because you can trip and fall and break a leg in holes, uh, you know, every 10 feet. And they've lost in, uh, significant numbers of elk and wolves. They're down to about 15 wolves. Uh, as of last count, I believe, because the wolves and the other uh, uh, higher species on Isle Royal have just continuously diminished their populations by falling into these pits. Now, to visualize for the audience, these copper pits are not very deep, most of them, anciently. On the Keweenaw Peninsula, Fred Ridholm, who... Uh, researched these things for about 40 or 50 years. Uh, he claimed that there were over a million uh, of these copper pits, 
and I'm sure he's right because uh, even today in uh, near Copper Harbor, Michigan, uh, and on Isle Royal in particular, uh, you can find places where these copper pits exist, and you will find literally hundreds of these two, three thousand year old hammer stones that they used to bash the copper and form it uh, for and prepare it for shipment. And part of the way they did this is um, they would, uh, we have an actual illustration in some uh, old texts of, of like scaffolding. They would find a, a nugget and they would simply add scaffolding to it and raise it out of a pit. But they almost never went below 30 feet. And most of the pits were 6 to 10 or 20. But the other thing that the audience needs to know is um, uh, if you'll, uh, they might be able to see one of the pictures I sent. Um, there's a picture of a 25-ton float copper nugget with about 30 people standing around it that was found about 15 years ago uh, just lying on top of the ground, and this was common. Um, we have numerous other photographs uh, in the uh, early 1900s to the 50s and 60s, and people are still finding giant nuggets, 6, 8, 10 tons of pure copper, uh, and the Michigan copper is very uh, easy to identify in terms of its uh, uh, matrix because Michigan copper has, typically has a small intrusion of silver in it. So Michigan copper compared to the rest of the world's copper is like anywhere from 90 to 97% purity which means you can smelt it directly and fashion it into anything you want without having to cook it at 2,000 degrees in an iron wow. kiln. And as opposed to, uh, say, the Romans and the Greeks uh, and the Turks, most of the rest of the world's copper, for instance, in Britain and Turkey, is typically 23% to about 38% pure. So it took a tremendous amount of firepower, if you will, to blast off the encrustation of rock and, and slag to get useful copper. So you can see why these people would invest themselves in their ships and sail here and spend about three years on a voyage or so, and they would sail over with giant uh, well, I shouldn't say giant, massive, uh, what we call ballast stones, and they would typically have a circle in the middle, and that would hold the ship uh, at its proper water line on the way over. They would sail up the Mississippi or down the St. Lawrence into Lake Superior, and we know now that, uh, you know, post-glacially, uh, the Chicago River, for instance, and the Wisconsin River and the Autrain Rivers in in uh, the Upper Peninsula, these rivers were much wider and deeper than they have been in, say, the last three or 400 years. And so they could literally sail right up through Chicago into Lake Michigan 
and stop off at a very mystical place called Beaver Island, which you are aware of, um, but our listeners may not be. And Beaver Island, in the last 10 years, we have now, uh, courtesy Bob, uh, Dr. Bob Schurz and Dr. Bob Liss, um, have done tremendous research along with some others, uh, and they, uh, I believe we have uh, located something on the order of nine what they believe are ancient stone, uh, uh, Minoan-style, Roman-style docking wharfs on the edges of Beaver Island. Um, I also saw a presentation a year or so ago from a lady who had discovered three or four ancient Minoan birthing stones they're about the size of a roll-top desk, typically, and with a seat literally smoothed out in them where uh, the uh, apparently they must have brought their women with them, some of them on their ships, and when they were pregnant, they would sit on these birthing stones, like almost like a, a sofa, lay back, give birth, and there was a birth channel cut into the rock where the aftermath and so forth could flow. And this also became a ritual altar for their pagan goddesses. So then wow. they would proceed They would proceed up towards Escanaba, Michigan, and literally sail up or through, depending on which direction you came from, uh, they could sail out of Superior through the Autrain River, which becomes the Whitefish River, right through the Upper Peninsula, and uh, and sail right down the Mississippi, uh, back to a place in the south, in Louisiana, uh, called Poverty Point. And what they would do is they would, when they were here in the Keweenaw Peninsula, on the very upper tip of Michigan, it's where they would do this mining, they had formed stone molds, and uh, we ha recently we uh, a fellow in Ohio found uh, an ancient smoothly carved stone mold of a giant sundial. <laughs> okay, oh, we've my. also found, <laughs> we have actually got stone molds out of the mounds in several mounds in Ohio that still have the forged copper axe heads uh, inside the, ca the mold cast. But at any rate, they, they would take a large stone and etch out what academics have labeled and called and termed oxides. In other words, it kind of looks like um, when you skin a beaver and you get the four-leg corners of a uh -huh. skin – that's what their copper oxides would look like. That's how they, the shape they formed them in. And they would apparently cold hammer these into, I call them like T-shirts. <laughs> and these, these were done in a 60-pound format, which they called talents. And they would then cast out their stone ballast stones into the water and then replace them with these rows of 60-pound ballast 
copper ingots. And how do we know this? Well, in the last 15 or 20 years or so, they have experts have found four ancient sailing vessels, one dating back to about 2500 BC, one dating back to about 1000 BC, and a couple dating from 200 AD and 500 AD, I believe, off the coast of Turkey, and one in particular is off the is off the coast in an area called uh, and the ship is referred to as the Ulubarun ship. And we have beautiful photographs, and you can see them in Ancient American Magazine, uh, I think the December issue of 2017. Uh, Jay Wakefield, who is a terrific researcher in the this arena and in on Poverty Point and uh, on copper navigational devices, he has actually got 20 or 30 handheld ancient copper navigational axe heads, they refer to them as, with dots, lines that he has deciphered the actual latitudes and longitudes that they use to navigate here. And he, he shows in his articles how they navigated to Beaver Island. At any rate, uh, we have photographs uh, of the holds of the, these a uh, couple of these ships with the ancient amphora in them, uh, and here are these excellent 60-pound copper oxides lying in the holds. Wow. Um, additionally, additionally, which is further evidence that the academics have to deal with, I think, is uh, I just um, found a beautiful picture rendering of an ancient hieroglyph in Egypt at a place called Rekamara, uh, in the tomb, I think, of uh, Pharaoh uh, Keshfuti, and it shows six or seven slaves carrying different objects. And two of the slaves are carrying these ox hides on their shoulders. No. <laughs> and, this, and this tomb dates back circa uh, 2000 to 3000 BC, I believe. So that's your connecting the dots. I'm trying to connect the dots here for the audience with the ancient copper folks, the Mediterranean, and the ancient garden builders. Now, the other arena that uh, I think the audience was uh, might be find fascinating is this past year I've been doing a lot of research into the notion of the myth that there were no horses around in North America till the Spanish arrived. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm going to, to stamp my foot and say that's a lot of garbage. Um, and so I'd like to explain, um, uh, touch on this subject if we could, unless you had another question about what we just covered. No, um, I was. I know I'm I was posing you. <laughs> that that's where I was going to go if you hadn't decided to go there. So go ahead. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Background-wise, I think most of us grew up again hearing the pre-Columbian and post-Columbian mythology taught us in school, which I don't even think they teach anymore at all, because um, they don't teach history in our schools anymore. Uh, no, they, don't. they don't even teach, they don't even teach uh, fairly uh, 
uh, 19th century U.S. history anymore for the most part. Um, they don't teach it anymore. <laughs> right. Um, at any rate, the the academic model and myth has been for the last two centuries, really, in our educational system is that uh, <clears throat> the there was this ancient American horse, and most of us grew up hearing about this little tiny horse called Eohippus, right? And it was uh-huh. about the size of a, of a small dog or cat, supposedly. And uh, there is, uh, you know, some interesting paleontology uh, uh, on that score. However, academics, uh, and, and by the way, the subject of horses, uh, uh, horses in the world in general is vast. It is an amazing subject. Um, everybody and his brother and sister have studied horses to death. Uh, and, but what's neat is we are always finding something new. Yeah. And historic, historically, academics have said the North American horse uh, appeared circa 3.5 million years or more or so uh, in North America and died out. Uh, and But before it died out, it made a journey. And some of them made a journey across the Bering Land Bridge, the Bering Strait Land Bridge, which they hist- historically, of course, taught us that human beings came out of Asia and came across the land bridge to North America, right? Right. Which, which is uh, only very partially true, because uh, uh, anybody who's lived in Alaska or flown over Alaska or that territory, uh, uh, ha- Alaska has 20 of the 22 tallest peaks in the Rocky Mountain Range or in Alaska. Um, and... They tell us, you know, anciently, prehistorically, that there was upwards of five miles of ice on top of them, and yeah. yet we have, and yet we have this nice little bearing land bridge that's just a real causeway for people and mammals to cross back and forth. So at any rate, and and so that's a topic for another show about human migration from Asia, but uh, which has uh, been part partially uh, uh, is only partially true um, uh, as the science moves forward. But what they're telling, have told us is that the horse managed to make its way the other direction <laughs> from America prehistorically goes to Asia and branches out into zebras, horses, and asses. Okay. Yeah. Then, then some period, uh, uh, they make their way back across the land bridge uh, in the Pleistocene period, and they hang out here in North America, and then they suddenly disappear during what's known as the megafauna extinction circa 14,000 B.C. Now, this has been the classical science on it, and this is what uh, folks are taught in college. And... So the next generation of graduates perpetuates it uh, because as far as most 
academics and their new grad students. It's uh, closed and set established science, right? Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, it happens that uh, it, since 2010, a couple of uh, genetics has brought us some very interesting findings in the last few years pertaining to the evolution of the horse and its presence in North America. Um, The University of Copenhagen in 2010 uh, had developed a whole new protocol, system of of genetic protocols for testing, um, DNA testing of uh, Pleistocene era and prehistoric fossil um, finds, and they ended up testing several bones of 700,000-year-old bones found in Canada, and they uh, determined that, uh, in fact, let me cite that for you here. Um, they uh, they discovered that the uh, DNA research uh, and their mapping of the genome of of what they refer to as the Yukon horse, which again dates back to 700,000 years, their research quote proves that woolly mammoths and prehistoric horses grazed together on the North American plains for several thousand years longer than previously thought. In other words, their, their genetic research was able to change the previous carbon-14 dating methods by some almost 6,000 years of correction. And, and that puts, it, uh, puts the presence of mammoths and horses and camels, uh, Pleistocene camels, woolly rhinos, uh, and so forth, into about the 10,000 before present time frame. And here's the kicker. Uh, From the Clovis research, they say the Clovis folks were here in circa 8,000 to 12,000 range. So what, what this really... Um, blows away and what they're saying is these uh, megafauna continue to exist concurrent with and interacted with human populations um, uh, all during the the late Pleistocene period. They go on to say that our findings show that the mammoth and horse existed side by side with the first human immigrants in America, 3,500 years, and parenthetically, of mutual existence, I've added, and therefore were not wiped out by human beings or natural disasters within a few hundred years, as common theories otherwise argued. It's believed these animals uh, were originally threatened with extinction, but they believed they survived in small, isolated herds uh, where living conditions were suitable and intact, and they say the findings breathe new life into the debate about why 
saber-toothed tigers, giant sloths, woolly rhinos, mammoths, suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, um, there in the in the Asian world where horses uh, have an evolutionary line, um, there those horse types, many of them were what is known as three-toed or two-toed. They didn't have the classical hoof of the modern horse that we see today. In America, we had a type of horse. The American horse is known as the stilt-legged horse, while the Asian type is referred to as the stout-legged horse. Many of your horse lovers are probably familiar with this concept. Um, They say that the details of the horse family tree over the past 2.5 million years remains pretty poorly understood. But a group of uh, about over a dozen renowned geneticists and, and paleontologists uh, at major universities to include um, the uh, uh, UC California Santa Cruz Department of Ec- Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, um, the, uh, uh, the California State University San Bernardino, um, uh, uh, and a score of others say uh, that they conducted their own DNA research in 2017. So we're moving forward to the present, right? And it says mm-hmm. um, the two major groups have been classified into stout-legged horses and stilt-legged horses. Both became extinct near the end of the Pleistocene in North America, but it's not clear how they related to one another. Well, a, a major researcher, Dr. Heinzman, showed that all stilt-legged horses, that's American, belong to a single species within its genus, referred to, and it's become known as the Harrington Hippus franciscae. And it says, our paleogenomic and morphometric analysis supports the idea that there was only one species of horse, middle to late Pleistocene, uh, horses are referred to in the Latin as equids or equidae, equidae, yeah. that it falls, falls outside this equus group. We therefore basically say there is a new genus called Harrington hippus, which is the sole species of H. francisci, and the current mitochondrial DNA model thus suggests that the stilt-legged horse morphology arose independently in the new and old worlds. So my summation is, ergo, they did not migrate back and forth. They did not intersect uh, and one create the other. Um, And so that leads us to a very interesting story, uh, (laughs) a a fascinating story called the hill horse. Uh, Sometimes... I sometimes refer to it as the Lehigh horse, but um, <laughs> okay. I had the great pleasure and opportunity to speak and interview with one of the, what I consider <laughs> uh, a really renowned paleontologist by the name of Rick Hunter, uh, who 
uh, has been on numerous uh, paleontological digs in Wyoming and around the West uh, for several decades, and he is a master at his profession. And about uh, in uh, September 2017, as it happens, a family uh, by the name of uh, Laurel and Bridger Hill, who live just off I-15 in a subdivision in a place called Lehigh, Utah, um, had brought in some landscapers to do some landscaping in their backyard. And as it happens, the landscapers uh, pulled back about six feet of uh, high bank sand behind their home, and lo and behold, uh, a, uh, a skeleton appeared in the soil, and uh, they stopped their work and began to examine it. Unfortunately, the diggers had already smashed the skull, but the rest of the find was in beautiful condition and fully intact. And uh, the Hill family, thinking, reflecting on the fact that this area in the late 1800s and forward had been pioneer farms before it became subdivisions, they assumed uh, right away that it was probably the remains of a cow. And so they kind of worked around it, and apparently... Uh, over a matter of weeks or months, uh, some of the neighborhood kids came and, and filched a few bones for souvenirs here and there. And I guess they thought it was kind of cool. But here was the fascinating thing. Um, this uh, specimen was not fossilized. It was in its original organic state. Well, I guess a few weeks or a few months went by right before winter. They contacted a neighbor who happened to be a geologist with Brigham Young University up the road. And they said, hey, why don't you come over, Steve, and look at, at this thing and tell us what you think. And so he, he did, and he told them right away, he said, I don't think this is a cow, I think it may be an ancient horse or something, said, uh, you know, there's a couple people you could call. And so they ended up calling a fellow by the name of Rick Hunter, a top-notch paleontologist who happens to be the chief paleontologist and I think the curator of the world's largest paleontological museum, which is called the Museum of Ancient Life, just down the road in Lehigh, Utah. <laughs> wow. And so, how did, but, Ron, how, how did it survive without decomposition for that long? Um, well, that's, uh, let me give you the Paul Harvey on that, the rest of the story. Okay. Um, Hunter, uh, they, they uh, made a verbal agreement with Hunter and a, a team of his uh, to have them come look at it, which they did, and he told them, wow, uh, this is not a cow. This is a prehistoric horse, <laughs> okay? And as he's explaining to this, apparently they came to a verbal oral agreement that, hey, 
we're the right folks to excavate this for you. And what we'll do is I'll, we'll use the team and our money, and we will excavate it, and we will research the find and uh, do the expensive DNA testing and analysis and further research uh, in exchange that we can eventually put the specimen uh, on display, okay? Mm-hmm. Which seemed to make perfect sense to me. And so uh, originally that was what the understanding was. So Rick and his team came out, spent several days, and I think I've sent, he sent me some beautiful photographs, which I've forwarded to you for the folks to view, of their excavation. They spent several days excavating it and took it to the museum down the road, and they had about two weeks to um, examine the find. Uh, in my discussions with Rick, uh, here's how it went. Uh, they determined that, of course, this uh, find was, of course, uh, as I indicated, not fossilized. It was in its original organic state. So I have to explain for the audience, I've got to give you a mental picture that where I-15 corridor runs north and south in Utah, the mountains are to the east or the right of it, okay? And I lived out there for a few years, so I'm very familiar with all the territory because I used to go ghost towning and, and fossil hunting myself all across Utah. Uh, and so the road, actually, the highway actually runs a, along the edge of what used to be ancient prehistoric Lake Bonneville, the remnant of which, part of it, is the remnant today, the Great Salt Lake. There's also a smaller pond, <laughs> which we call Utah Lake. It, it's very sizable. Um, but anciently, uh, this Lake Bonneville was massive. It covered most of Utah and portion of southern Idaho and pieces of Nevada and so forth. And in places, it was a 1,000 feet deep. That's enormous. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, it receded and expanded 28 times over thousands of millennia. Well, what happened is, if you go to Utah today, like many other places, but particularly there, they have in Utah what they call benches. And when you live somewhere, they'll say, oh, you live up on the bench. Yeah, or the terrace, okay? Well, just think of the lake being up, you know, eight or 900 feet astride a mountain and then gradually receding, and it would create these steps, which we call benches, okay? And uh-huh. so Lehigh happens to be at the very bottom of the shore level almost, uh, where the lake has receded far away from it now. What, we, what Hunter and I believe uh, is that uh, – let me first describe what the horse was like in his findings so that you can appreciate what happened to it, uh, perhaps. Uh, he says the horse was uh, 9 to 11 years old. Um, he he uh, explained that he found evidence of what appears to be a cancerous tumor on its right rear leg. 
and it had severe degenerative um, arthritis of the spine. So uh, if, uh, and then he feels that the specimen was likely in the 12 to 14,000 uh, year old range. Whoa. Okay. So that puts it post placed or, you know, that Pleistocene margin. Now, here's what I think will be interesting to know. Uh if we can discover it. Uh, but let me interject that the horse has gone missing. <laughs> okay? So now, now comes the mystery of the missing hill horse. And by the way, uh, Rick, uh, you know, paleontologists and archaeologists, one of, one of the perks of their trade, like many others, is they get to name their finds. Yeah. Okay. And and to identify them as they desire. And Rick was kind enough, he named the horse the Hill Horse after the Hill family. Yeah. And which was pretty cool. Um be, and so here you have this horse that is basically fairly lame, right? Uh, uh-huh. I've, uh, I had a, a Shetland pony, Welsh Shetland pony growing up, and he was a big, tough, stocky horse, and, uh, and we call them, a, they call them ponies, but they will tear you and mess you up, <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I, I've also owned a Morgan quarter horse that was a registered quarter horse and dealt with some of the leg and uh, tissue and tumor issues that apparently this horse uh, uh, was uh, plagued by. At any rate, you have this uh, basically 10, 11-year-old horse that's suffering probably most of its life, and it's probably trying to stay up with its herd walking or or, uh, grazing along this bench area. And... uh, People can reflect back. If you go back in time, what kind of megafauna would have been roaming that area? Well, you would have had likely some giant sloth in the upper mountain areas. They typically, as in the Grand Canyon, there are hundreds of caves uh, that were home to giant ground sloths. And paleontologists have been studying their scat for decades um, uh, to understand how they managed to live in these uh, very sparse environments. So you have sloths probably up in the hills, um, in the foothills. You probably have dire wolves that are about half again larger or maybe two times larger than your traditional wolf today, modern wolf. You'd have um, you might have some smilodons or saber-toothed tigers, uh, but more likely large cougars. I suspect, and you never hear this, but I suspect that just as we have uh, the remnant of the California condors today, which typically have wingspans circa 18 feet and so forth, I suspect yeah. that there were probably Rocky Mountain condors uh, or some variant of the California 
that would pick off carrion and small animals as well. So this animal was probably trailing its herd, and it may have been culled by the herd by massive cougar or, or a wolf pack or something, and it was probably chased towards the water's edge. And in order to escape uh, capture, it probably swam uh, a ways out. And you can almost visualize these creatures just sitting there on the shore waiting for it to decide to come back in. And it it may have well been uh, very cold. Uh, I can imagine uh, if you've ever been uh, near the Salt Lake on the shores of it, during January, you know, in the winter months, uh, when that wind comes off that lake, waves will get, they can get five, six feet, um, and you will freeze very quickly. Well, if it was close to winter, whether it was beginning, middle, or end, this animal probably went into hypothermia very quickly and succumbed, and it simply just sank right in with its legs, almost vertical position. What's further fascinating is I don't have a picture of it, but I did see a picture that when they removed the specimen, I saw a hoof with its original golden fur still attached to the foot as if you could, uh, a blacksmith uh, lifted it ready to put a horseshoe on it. That's how well-preserved the specimen was. Now, because the top of it had been exposed at some point, birds or vultures had picked at it, much like they often do in Siberia to the mammoth. And you'll find the lower section of the mammoth they found uh, several years ago when they unfroze it and ran a tube into its stomach, it bled. You know, thousands of year year old blood was draining out of it. And so, uh, but they're usually typically picked off at the top. And sometimes you'll get an organic uh, skin or remains underneath. Well, that's how nice the hoof was that I saw in the photograph. So we suspect that the horse was probably chased in there. I think there's even a possibility... um, Rick says this horse was probably Shetland pony size. I suspect that it might have been malnutrition. You know, it was probably struggling to eat, so it probably wasn't real stocky and sturdy. Um, And, you know, a massive condor or something might have attempted to lift it even and may have dropped it, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40 yards into the shoreline, and it simply couldn't back, uh, get back. We just don't know, but somehow it ended up in the lake, and it went to the muddy bottom, and as the lake receded, it was beautifully preserved. Um, so uh, two weeks into their examination and preservation, by the way, to your original question, how you know how did they – saved a specimen, um, Rick used what's called a wet sand protocol, which is you pull the specimen out, since it's organic, and you put it in wet sand, like beach sand, um, and you let it 
kind of dry out naturally, right? And and that way you're trying to preserve the DNA uh, tissue as best they can. Rick actually and his people actually went around door to door to the neighbor kids and said, hey, by the way, I'd like to have those bones back. <laughs> and they managed they managed to get, I think, a couple of teeth and a few bones back, and they pretty much had the whole specimen, uh, even a few pieces of the skull and so forth, to examine. So they only had it two weeks, and Rick and the museum uh, had mentioned to them during the course of excavation that uh, they needed to get a legal consent for transfer, as you can imagine, um, uh, to take possession of it for research and eventual display. And so they had prepared a legal document for the Hill family to sign to, you know, give them permission to take control and and guardianship of this find. And they had a little meeting a couple weeks later, and as they met, the the husband and wife of the the Hill family, um, this this verbal agreement, oral arrangement that they had, kind of evaporated, and uh-huh. they said, "Well, we don't recall agreeing to that." And Rick, Rick, you know, they discussed it more, and he explained, "Well, you know, we've already invested about five thousand dollars in." our team coming and research time and and uh, they vacuum uh, packed or secured the fossil find um, to preserve it you know against oxygen uh, degradation and uh, so the fossil specimen was all uh, basically prepared and at least in secure condition and uh, after you know Fifth, I guess some period of time of discussion, Rick could tell from the back and forth that this was not going to work out. And uh, he, he decided that it would be in the best interest. And he mentioned to the Hills, I understand that maybe the best thing we could do, at least in the interim, is for you, for us to return the remains to you. And you guys can think about, contemplate, how you'd like to proceed in the future, and if you'd like us to uh, take guardianship of it and work this, because Rick had made arrangements with the universe, some folks at University of Utah to assist with DNA analysis and microanalysis, and he had had some discussions with the Utah State um, uh, paleontologists and uh, uh, geological group, and so he had been uh, working already working with other groups to prepare for farming, you know, teeth or other portions of it out for temporary uh, analysis and so forth. And keep in mind, this museum—you're talking about a museum that is over 100,000 square feet, over 60, 60 full-size raptor, Utah raptor, um, dinosaur display, specimen displays, and this is a neat place. 
And uh, I hope to go visit it sometime uh, later this year, if at all possible, or next year, um, because it's a beautiful museum. They even have a really upscale restaurant and um, all kinds of programs for the kids to learn how to not only dig fossils, but they teach kids how to plaster jacket uh, to preserve the fossils. So they have wow. some fabulous programs for adults and kids, um, and people really ought to take advantage of it, I think. But at any rate, they returned the upshot is they returned the specimen to the Hill family. They had not spoken in a year. Curiously enough, about two weeks ago, I'm speaking with Rick, uh, interviewing him on the subject, and he says, Lon, guess what? Um, per our discussion, or after talking to you, I think the day before or a couple of days earlier, he said, I decided to fire off an email to the Hill family um, just to see how they're doing. So I talked to him on that Friday. He says, Lon, you wouldn't believe it. I just got an email <laughs> from the Hill family about two hours ago. And he said they didn't, you know, there wasn't much there. They They just... Uh, they just answered my email like, I guess he had asked them, you know, can you tell me anything about the status or uh, what you're pursuing? And I guess they basically replied kind of neutrally, uh, not giving away anything. And I guess they indicated that it's no longer in their possession. Oh, wow. And as we discussed the issue, um, Rick, and I both, because I've been following this story for 18 months. I remember reading about it, see, back in September of 2017. So it caught my interest, and I wanted, just at the moment, I was thinking of pursuing my research into what I call the paleo horse or the American horse. And so, bingo, here's this neat find. And so I've been following it from day one. And... Uh, the other news report, the news uh, stations in Utah just descended on the Hill family, apparently. Um, number of TV cameras, uh, different stations, they were interviewed by many, many people. And this thing went viral on social media, Facebook, all over the world. And so, as you can imagine, you know, when somebody finds a T Rex, <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> that's worth that's worth millions of dollars, right? Um, and so, you know, if it, if it was any of us, and we had this specimen in our backyard, you know, inevitably a neighbor or somebody or somebody on social media is going to say, "Hey, you probably hit the lottery on this horse." You know, you better be, you know, think about what you ought to do with it. I'm not saying this is what happened to him, but I'm saying I'm speculating that. This is what they had to deal with, right? Um, and uh, this kind of stuff pops up all the time. But I think the Hill family may have been very much interested in trying to find out more about the horse and the specimen. And having taken it back, they may have decided, oh, well, maybe uh, we should look into, or maybe they're getting offers from some people to buy it. That could happen, too. But I suspect that they may have turned it over 
to a, another university or something, and uh, in by preference uh, could have even been BYU or something, and so huh. which is just up the road also too. See, and BYU has a large faculty with large, you know, a, a fair amount of capacity to examine it. So does University of Utah, and uh, and others. See, so. Uh, it could have gone a number of places. Uh, we just don't know where it is, and the Hill family uh, is not saying, <laughs> apparently. So well, you know, the, um, the 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 giant bones were sold to people too, and for private collections. So many you know, times, it, yes. It easily could have been something like that. But before we run out of time. I, one of the stories that in, in reading all of this material that fascinated me tremendously was the mm-hmm. God Pot. Oh, the God Kettle. <laughs> yeah. The God Kettle. Um, <clears throat> for for those folks that may be familiar with uh, or know the map of Michigan, if you turn – and you know this from living in Michigan, one of our favorite ways of explaining people how to look at Michigan's lower peninsula is you simply look at your right hand. And it's almost exactly shaped like Michigan. And where your thumb is, we call it the thumb. (laughs) And where your little finger is, is is, uh, the thumb is on Lake Huron, of course, and on on your little finger at the tip of it is a beautiful town called Traverse City. And yep. its its shoreline uh, forms is uh, formed off the edge of Lake Michigan. And, in fact, uh, Sleeping Bear Dunes at uh, Empire, which is right next to Leelanau, Michigan, uh, just 20, 30 miles above Traverse City, has been named by National Geographic as the most beautiful place in America, uh, for those who care. Um, But at any rate, at Traverse City, Michigan, uh, it has a peninsula that juts uh, between it and what's called Little uh, Grand Traverse Bay. So you have like a finger that juts out, and that's a huge peninsula. And then there's this bay, and in the middle of the bay, um, just uh, on the edge of Traverse, is a place called Mission Peninsula. And that's another finger that shoots out about 20 miles into uh, Lake Michigan, or what what's known as Little Traverse Bay. Um, so you go back in time to 18. 18- 38 or 1837 excuse me Michigan became a state in 1837 uh, and uh, incidentally it was my wife's great uncle Lucius Lyon uh, who was the first senator of Michigan who resol- helped resolve in Congress the Toledo line war in exchange for the upper peninsula uh, and so that uh, the Ohioans wanted Toledo as a port. So uh, he managed to negotiate it in Congress as, so that Michigan could become a state in 1837. 
uh, prior to that and during that period, Mackinac Island, just above the tip of your finger, where the Mackinac Bridge is today, um, the largest suspension bridge in America, five miles, Mackinac Island was the fur trading capital of the world historically. And in the early 1800s, it was John Jacob Astor who owned most of it and set up his fur company there. So a lot of people, uh, it was part of the north, they were seeking the Northwest Passage to uh, the West Coast and the Pacific. And so many people during the late 1700s, early 1800s, were pioneer explorers coming, and they would often come to Mackinac uh, and try to familiarize themselves with the territory. At any rate, one of the people that came in 1837 was a man named Reverend Doherty, and Doherty was a Presbyterian reverend, and he brought a friend with him, and they sailed over to Mackinac Island first, and then around the curve down towards what would eventually become Traverse City. And he sailed into East Grand Traverse Bay in March of 1837, I believe it was. And as he sailed into the bay, they dropped anchor, and he uh, departed the ship with his friend, another reverend, and they saw this this, uh, teepee on the shoreline, and they noticed across the peninsula, part of the peninsula was this beautiful apple orchard. And so they got in a small dinghy, rode to the shore, and came upon this this fellow, and they introduced themselves, and he spoke English, uh, having picked it up from some trappers, apparently. And his name was Chief Agosa. And they became very close friends. And Doherty brought his wife uh, a few months later, and they created what was called the mission school. They created a mission school, and they began to teach uh, Chief Agosa and his tribal men carpentry. And within two years, they were building their own houses. And they pretty much... uh, uh, grew a- away from their temporary bark lodges and so forth. At any rate, over the ensuing 10 or 12 years, uh, they uh, they were very much trusted, of course, and uh, they had a feast festival, according to Doherty's diaries, that uh, on one occasion, Chief Agosa took him into the forest of Mission Peninsula, and at that time, uh, we had forests here, and I have a tree that's up against our house that's 120 feet high, and its sister tree is a foot away, and it's about 100 feet tall, and they are white pines. They're the same tree that is you were used uh, for sailing masts on the clipper ships, and uh, this entire region was covered in them, and with massive oaks and maples. And so when Chicago burned, had the Chicago fire in 1871, um, uh, it is common knowledge here in this region that they say Antrim County, Michigan, rebuilt Chicago. They literally leveled 
the forests here and flooded Lake Michigan with timber logs and random rafts all the way to Chicago and rebuilt Chicago after the fire of 1871. And by the way, as an aside in my research uh, about six years ago, I discovered the real cause of the, the Chicago fire. It turns out that night uh, of the Chicago fire was the largest fiery meteor storm recorded in America that night. It was, uh, people talk about, uh, there were a few hundred people that obviously died in the Chicago fire. What most Americans don't know is that we lost almost 8,000 people in Peshtigo, Wisconsin that same night burned an entire town and everyone in it such that wow. relatives didn't, did not know that their family uh, was gone until people drove into town in wagons and saw it leveled and, and charcoal remains everywhere. Okay. Um, Lon, we've only this, got 10 minutes to go. Okay. Uh, give me one minute here. It also burned the lumber mills of Manistee and Alpena, Michigan. So Doherty uh, is taken into the forest by Chief Agosa, and he is astonished because they have prepared a giant elk, a massive elk, in this massive eight-foot copper kettle. And he describes this kettle as being eight feet in circumference, and they could cook an entire elk or bear inside it, and it had a few strange markings on it, but it had no lip and no rings on the sides. And he asked Chief Agosa, uh, how did your people create this massive copper kettle? And he said his response was, our people did not create it. It was left to us by our ancient fathers. Our people found it. Uh, embraced by massive trees several what he would have termed centuries before and our and their people um, took possession of this massive copper kettle which Doherty came to call the God kettle because it was so massive and uh, so uh, flash forward about 10 or 15 years Chief Agosa passed away and a new chief um, gained authority in the tribe named Chief Kowaden, and there's a small town in uh, Next Elk Rapids there above Trapper City called Kowaden. And Chief Kowaden, from what we can discern, apparently traded the kettle to a farmer for some, some blankets and a horse. Here's the sad Paul Harvey. Elk Rapids became America's first in fact, I think it was the first in the world. They created the first plant for creating turpentine and kerosene and chemicals that they were shipping to Germany for several decades. And they created their own processes, uh, a mill, and they burned, uh, they, they uh, deforested the area and took that wood and lumber to serve as charcoal to fire the mills. Well, a few years later, in comes an iron pot and pan factory, and they're smelting ore and making pots and pans and other things. And it appears 
that uh, no one can uh, seems to know what happened to the God kettle, but I suspect the farmer probably said, aha, you know, here's, uh, they probably paid him a hundred, couple hundred dollars for the copper, and it probably got smelted down, unfortunately. So this is how stuff just disappears. <laughs> so, and that's the name of that tune. <laughs> well, it's a great story, and mm-hmm. and from what I understood, it, it when they discovered it, it didn't appear that it had been used at all. Right. Um, Agosa said that when they discovered it, um, there were saplings growing out of it because detritus and soil and dirt had accumulated uh, over, you know, some large period of time, and they actually scooped it out and managed to extricate the kettle from the embrace of these large trees. Uh, I think I did a an author's sketch for the article in Ancient American back in December of 2017, so there is my uh, rendering of uh, what it may have looked like when, uh, uh, long ago. It's so. just, you know, oh. it, it's stuff like this that, that makes you so sad, that, that something that, that, that has such great historical relevance, you know, mm-hmm. disappears, just as, just, as the, just as the hill horse. I mean, you, you kind of, you get a glimpse of your past and then suddenly it's destroyed or it's hidden or it disappears or, you know, and then, then you have nothing to go on to prove that it was actually there other than I heard about it, I read about it, or I saw an article about it. And the history in this Indeed. country is so rich and so phenomenal. Yes. And, yep. <laughs> and it's, it's a history that would make history fun and intriguing to learn and oh, I and, think so. and yet oh my goodness yes i mean the the garden beds are are phenomenal i still can't figure out of course maybe they did have horses how they how they you know took care of them i mean the 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 way they planted there was no weed, they didn't have to worry about weeds because of course you know the the leaves of of the pumpkins and the squash would would choke out any weeds so Right. You know, it it well, was it was so brilliantly done, and and then suddenly oh, yeah. it stopped. Well, and, and and that's that's the dot that I'm trying to connect in all this research is that um, there is no way even a thousand people in a general area there's no way they could have created these garden beds simply by human labor of hoeing them into shape, you know. 100 acres of these things, they had to have draft animals, and they had horses. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to upload that picture of the several thousand-year-old archaic plowhead, which is sitting in the Lansing Historical Museum in Lansing, Michigan. Um, And it's three feet long, and it has an angular recess to receive a wooden handle. And... Uh, it must weigh close to 30 pounds, and yet the archaeologists who have it on display are calling it an axe head. Oh, and so, well, <laughs> so it's a plow. Well, I, it's no, an ancient plow. I will plow. tell you, 
I'll take all of your pictures, and they'll be um, they'll be a part of the um, the YouTube presentation that will go up tomorrow. All of the pictures will be Great. there, so Great. so that people can get a chance of looking at and and seeing a lot of what we've been talking about. I, I want to thank you so much for taking such such a great amount of time and sharing with us all of this because it just it, it history comes alive when you see stuff like this and when people do watch you know the the YouTube presentation for sure they can see all of the different kinds of configurations of the beds that are out there and mm-hmm. it's phenomenal it it's it's to think that thousands of years ago or a thousand years ago um people in this country were doing stuff like that they were not just you know digging little ditches and and you know growing herbs and stuff for their for their own you know consumption it was mass produced fairly existing right right yeah uh, so. and it's interesting to note that we see they recently found similar geometric beds in luxor egypt and the uh-huh. zuni nation uh, I think I have a picture in there of the Zuni Nation in New Mexico farmed in a – they farm three sisters, and they farm in a geometry near their villages as well. Seems to me we could learn a lot from the past, but but we're down to, to our last seconds here. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this, and I'm going to have to have you back on again. Well, it was a delight to be with you, Barbara, and thank you so much for the opportunity to, sh- to share it with people. Oh, you're so welcome. And um, everybody, well, tune in tomorrow night. Um, Mark has a great show lined up, and uh, we'll be here again next Monday night, too. Um, again, thank you, Lon, and good night, everybody. Good night, all.